Back in April, I recorded an interview with Stephen Bedard. Unfortunately, some of that interview did get cut off through technical difficulties that I will accept full responsibility for. Still, we have about an hour and 40 minutes of that interview. And so, for this episode, I hope you'll listen to it and realize it will be cut short, but I did put together as much as I could, and my apologies for this mistake. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. You're probably soon going to get flooded with a few new podcasts. We've had a lot of things going on here, and getting the podcast out hasn't been something I've been able to do as quickly as I would like, so my apologies, again, it's all mine here. But I've been interviewing people about autism all this month. The first Saturday of the month, we had myself and my friend Dan Ventress on. And we're both on the spectrum, so that was a discussion about what our lives are like, especially since both of us are involved in apologetics. Last week, we had Sarah Ankerman come on, and she talked about her son, who has autism, and she being in the field of apologetics, how that affects her. And today, we've got Stephen Bedard on here. Now, who is he? Stephen Bedard has a BBA from Brock University, MDiv, MTH, and MA degrees from McMaster Divinity College, and is a current D-Men student at Acadia Divinity College. He is a chaplain in the Canadian Army Reserves and an adjunct professor at Emmanuel Bible College. And he's a he's written a book about how to make your church more autism-friendly, which is certainly a great situation we have here. So, um, Stephen, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to to be here. We're excited to have you here. Now, since some people in the audience might not know who you are that well, tell us a bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing. Well, that's uh, going to be interesting because I have to figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> There's so many areas that that I'm involved in. Uh, in terms of autism. The way I got involved in that was because of my children. I have five children, but our two oldest children both have autism, so that was my entry into that world. And of course, the the first uh, number of years was just trying to survive that. Uh, both children have uh, pretty severe autism, so there's a lot of challenges that go along with that. And I was pastoring at the time. And so I was uh, put in a position where I was both the uh, pastor of the church, trying to figure out how to uh, make the church um, friendly towards those with disabilities, and also I was the autism dad advocating for my children. So that was a a big part of, of how that came together. And I've gotten more and more involved in disability ministries and disability advocacy uh, over that time. I've gotten involved uh, somewhat in a, uh, there's a 
ministry here in Ontario, Canada, uh, that's called uh, Christian Horizons, and they are involved in, in doing lots of different things. Uh, they have group homes and, and uh, camps and that type of thing, uh, but they also provide uh, resources for pastors, and so I've been able to uh, speak at uh, one of their conferences, and they have another conference coming up that I'm going to, I'm not going to be a speaker, but I'm going to be attending. And uh, so that that's a, a part of what I'm doing. So that, that that's how I got involved in that. And and uh, as one of the, the themes that you have on this show, I'm also involved in apologetics as well. Uh, the, the educational background that I have is in uh, New Testament studies. So I come at apologetics from that perspective, and uh, I've been involved in that uh, for uh, just over 10 years, and that's uh, that's good as well. And actually, uh, people sometimes ask me, well, how does disability studies and apologetics go together? And I think that they very much go together. There's a, a lot of questions that overlap. We ask questions of why does God allow things like mm-hmm. autism, and that's very much an apologetic question to to be wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I think when we're, we're dealing with um, uh, skeptics and you're, you're talking about uh, the truth of Christianity, uh, aside from any intellectual questions about that, they're going to want to know what is the church doing. And so we can have all the philosophical questions down perfectly, mm-hmm. but if we're not reaching out to people who need ministry, People are going to be aware of that, and all of our arguments are going to to uh, sound hollow. So that's how those two sides of my ministry come together. Mm-hmm. Now, with the apologetics front, I'd like to people know you have a book out with Stanley Porter. Actually, you know, that was a pretty big name in the field, and I think it's called Unmasking the Pagan, the Cosmic Christ, right? Uh, Unmasking the Pagan Christ. Pagan the, Christ. Okay. Yeah, the, the cosmic part is. Uh, um, now, now you're uh, you're testing me here. The uh, um, answering the cosmic Christ idea, or something like that, mm-hmm. because the uh, the way that um, Tom Harper that's the, the book is a response to Tom Harper, who is a mm-hmm. Canadian author, and he is a proponent of the the Jesus myth theory. Now, a lot of the, the people who talk about the Jesus myth today are coming from an atheist perspective, but uh, Tom Harper uh, doesn't do that. He believes in something called the Cosmic Christ, and the Cosmic Christ would be sort of this spiritual truth that is within every person, uh, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever, uh, that every single one of us have the Cosmic Christ inside of us. So it's a mm-hmm. kind of a, a New Age spirituality yeah. And uh, he tags onto that the uh, the Jesus uh, the Jesus myth part. So yeah, that's uh, that was a lot of fun to be able to be involved in in that particular book. And the re- the, my connection with uh, Stan Porter is he's the president of McMaster Divinity College, and as well uh, is uh, one of the main uh, New Testament professors there. And I was taking a course with him on uh, I was taking a course with him on First Corinthians and. That was happening at the same time I was having some interaction with uh, Tom Harper. And so out of some conversation there, uh, he agreed to work with me on that. And he's definitely one of the top historical Jesus scholars that's out there. So Mm -hmm. 
I was very happy to be able to to work with them on that, and uh, it was a lot of fun to to do that. There's actually a, a documentary that goes along with it. I wish I could uh, get copies of it, but it's very difficult to do that. But at least in Canada, every Easter they play it, and uh, that was a lot of fun as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to let people know also that <clears throat> this week earlier I did an interview with Julian Charles uh, on The Mind Renewed. I was on there few months ago to debate Ken Humphreys on the topic of Jesus' existence and we did a whole interview on mythicism and it was, after it was edited it was an hour and 53 minutes long it was a little bit longer, about two and a half hours to have a whole conversation so yes, I know what it's like to be interviewed for a long time (laughs) but if you all go to the Mind Renewed website, you can find it there, I think it's episode 106 but today, we're not talking about mythicism as much as it's a very fun topic to talk about. We're going to be talking about autism. Now, Stephen, when we say autism, what are we really talking about? Well, autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. Uh, it, when we talk about autism, it, in many ways it's better for us to talk about the uh, autism spectrum disorder because as soon as you say autism people have one thing in mind but there isn't one thing when it comes to autism Uh, it definitely is a spectrum where people can go from really any level of intelligence Uh, uh, there are uh, plenty of people with autism who have PhDs Mm -hmm. and uh, then there are other people who have uh, um, global developmental delays and uh, are just do not are, are not able to uh, to function at the same uh, intellectual level as their uh, chronological age so the, the way that autism affects people there's three general areas uh, one is communication uh, one is learning and one is uh, social interaction, and uh, those are the three main areas that uh, it affects mm-hmm. people. Yeah, when you said people usually have one thing come into their mind, I was thinking most people were probably thinking something like, say, Rain Man or Little Man Tate or Sheldon Cooper, for instance. That's right. Yes. Well, I still remember when uh, my son was diagnosed. He was uh, two and a half when he was diagnosed, and my first thought was Rain Man. And I thought that it would just be, uh, well, I, I thought that he would be someone who would be very distant, uh, who would not really be interested in interaction or anything like that, um, which wasn't the case. He, he's very uh, affectionate and emotional and uh, can express himself. Not He doesn't express himself with words, but he... Uh, is able to communicate in other ways. So even with the, our family, um, we our two children both are considered on the severe side, mm-hmm. and both of them are considered, or they are nonverbal. And mm-hmm. I'll talk a little bit what nonverbal is because there's a lot of uh, confusion about that term. But so that would make it sound like they're almost exactly alike, and yet they're not. Mm-hmm. They are very different. For example, my son has a lot of problem with wandering. He Mm -hmm. uh, runs away and uh, just stress gets to him. Uh, It could be, uh, you know, too much, too many uh, sights, too many sounds, smells, Mm -hmm. whatever. 
and he just has to run. And he's taken off sometimes for hours at a time. And, uh, and that's a part of who he is. But that's not a part of who my daughter is. If I go out with her, she's not going to try to try to run away wi- uh, from me. She'll just grab a hold of my waist and, and or uh, walk with me arm in arm, and that's who she is. It doesn't even enter her head to take off. And uh, our uh, again, our daughter, she was someone who was pretty destructive. She liked to destroy. Uh, books. Now, thankfully, she was destroying her own books and didn't get a hold of my library, so I'm kind of thankful for yes, that. Yes. Uh, but that's what she would do, and you know, she would break all kinds of stuff. She still does to uh, to a certain extent, uh, but our son doesn't do that. That's just not a part of who he is. So there's a lot of different things, uh, even when people are put into the same general area of the spectrum, they're still very different. Uh, I I like to say that. Uh, People with autism are as different from one another as people without autism. Mm-hmm. It, it's just the way it is. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about your son running because one thing that one of the things that's usually on the spectrum is that we tend to be very literalistic with things, which is a surprise since my interpretation of scripture can often be very unliteralistic in that sense. But I remember reading your book and you said, My son's a runner and I read that and I thought Hmm, well, you know, that's pretty cool. I like to go out and run. I like to run places. And then when I further got in, I thought, oh, he doesn't mean what I thought he meant. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, you know, and we've talked about uh, turning that into a positive thing so that he uh, would be a runner in the the good kind of way. Because mm-hmm. he actually has a, a good running stride. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about getting him involved in the... Uh, in you know Paralympics and and and, uh, and that kind of thing, but no, in in his case, he uh, he has the the bad kind of running, and that he um, he's very smart. That this is the problem. Uh, he yeah. knows how to trick people, and so he will stand there and just completely behave himself, and the uh, people let their guard down, and then they turn away just for a second, and very quietly, he's gone. And we had a very scary situation um, just uh, a number of months ago, maybe it was six months ago, where uh, we got a phone call. Uh, both of our children with autism don't live with us anymore. They're mm-hmm. both in group homes. Mm-hmm. And we got a call from the group home saying that Logan was gone. And we were very scared, of course, so we showed up at the group home and there was tons of police cars there. There was the canine unit and, and everything that so they were taking this very seriously, uh, what had happened. Uh, there was, uh, the media was there to report on what was taking place. And, uh, we looked everywhere around there and we could not find him. And we were very scared because we've heard many stories of, uh, children with autism. And he at that time was, uh, 13 years old. And we thought that we had lost him forever there. And then uh, after a couple of hours, he was gone uh, a number of hours, we found out where he was. Uh, He had made it to school. So uh, his school bus was late, and he knew that he had to go to school. So instead of waiting for the school bus, because he didn't know if the school bus was going to come, he walked to school. Now, that was uh, almost a 10-kilometer, uh, I don't know what that is in miles, but it's a long ways, 
uh, walk. In fact, it's it's from one city to another city that he he walked in order to get there. He got there, uh, and thankfully, someone found him just as he was approaching the school. And even though he wouldn't respond to the person, this person drove uh, behind him just to make sure that he was safe in terms of of crossing roads and and that type of thing. So that was a very, very scary situation. And we've had, that was the scariest one that we've had, but he's run away a number of times. And we have done all kinds of things that we thought we would prevent him from from uh, running, we put special locks on the doors, and uh, after just one day, he would figure out how to get through those locks. Mm. Uh, he's, uh, he's extremely intelligent, so uh, I sometimes say he's uh, he's too smart for our own good because mm. uh, he knows how to use his intelligence uh, against us. And, and I would love to be able to hear from him what he's feeling when he's about to run. What is it that makes him him do that? But uh, um, we're just not able to have that level of communication yet. Honestly, when you talk, when you talk about how uh, he, uh, you you can talk with him, and he turns and he runs pretty much. He he disappears if you glance for a minute. I, I start thinking me of those old Batman cartoons that I used to watch, where if you turn away on Batman, he's gone out the window, something like that. I mean, is that kind of thing you're talking about there? That's exactly what he does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, when <clears throat> you also talk about people on the spectrum, that even if they're on the same level, they can be vastly different. And I was immediately thinking, well, that certainly fits my own wife and I. That I'm the one who would prefer to be by myself, be reading my book, have my studies going on. We had the snow here back. Oh, February, March or so recently, and she couldn't stand being snowed in and saying, get me out of the house, get me out of the house. And me, I was like, I got my Kindle right here, I got my books here, I think I'm going to catch up on some good reading here. And I'm the one who's very much into the intellectual learning, although she is when it comes to animals and art. And she's much more the artist I'm the thinker, she's the feeler, so, yeah, we can have vast differences. That That is uh, so true, and in one of the things that I try to touch on in the book, mm-hmm. uh, How to Make Your Church Autism Friendly, is to encourage people not to make judgments based mm-hmm. on previous experience. I would say it's almost worse if someone has experience with one person with autism before, mm-hmm. it's also better for a church to go into it with no experience. Because if you go into it knowing just one or perhaps two people with autism, you're just going to assume that that new family that comes into your church who has a child with autism, mm-hmm. that they're going to be the way the other person was. And it, you can't make that assumption. We don't make that assumption with ch- uh, children who don't have autism. So why should we do it with uh, people who who do have autism? Because again, if someone uh, had my daughter in their Sunday school at first, they would think, okay, she's great. She stays where she's supposed to stay. And then a year later, if my son came, they would think that he would be the same way. 
and yet if they had the same level of uh, of attention towards him, uh, he'd be gone before they knew it. So you can't make those assumptions. And even in terms of uh, intelligence level, uh, our son, I think, uh, it, it's really hard to test it, but I think that he would be uh, around normal intelligence or perhaps uh, slightly above for his age, whereas our daughter is, um, sh- she's uh, 12 years old, and she's probably at around the intellectual age of about three years. And so, again, they, w- they would express themselves in a very similar way, and you might look at them and say, okay, yeah, you know, they're both at the same intellectual mm-hmm. level, but they're not. And uh, so those are things that it's very dangerous to make those kinds of assumptions. That's one of the main things that churches have to do in in terms of being autism-friendly, is to just get away from this idea that the, uh, autism is this uh, monolithic mm. situation where everyone is exactly the same. And at the same time, people who are familiar with autism should be more open to the idea that people who are behaving differently could be on a spectrum. I mean, this is what my wife and I look for. When we see children and people that behave differently, we kind of discuss that you think he could be on the spectrum. That's, I mean, when we, when I had Sarah Inkman on the show last week, I think one of the things I told her is that if you go up to someone at your church who's in a wheelchair, you're not going to challenge them to a foot race. That would just be rude and insensitive. But if someone comes in with autism, there's not going to be a big glowing sign over their head saying, Hey, autism right here. And, but when we go up to these kinds of people, we often assume they're just like neurotypical people. That's right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the challenges of autism. Uh, you, when you have something like Down syndrome, mm-hmm. you see uh, usually there's some kind of... Uh, facial features that tell you that this this child has Down syndrome. So you immediately uh, adjust your expectations uh, according to, to that. Now, even that is dangerous, of course, because there's many high-functioning Down syndrome people, yeah. but you at least have tolerance. So if you were in a grocery store and you saw that child with Down syndrome having a tantrum, you would say, oh, well, you know, there obviously that, that child has some challenges and you would have sympathy towards the parents and, and uh you know, might help out in some way. Whereas autism, there is nothing obvious. As you said, uh, you can look at someone with uh, with autism, and it's uh, there's just no features that tell you that there is something that is different. And so, one of the things that's really difficult for parents is uh, being in a grocery store or uh, some other public place and a child with autism has a meltdown. Now, a a meltdown is uh, not the same thing as a temper tantrum. A meltdown is a whole different level. Mm. And there have been many times that uh, strangers have seen this happening and have made judgments uh, towards uh, parents. Like, why aren't you taking control of your child? Why don't you make them behave? And I, I've heard many stories of this, and I've even seen uh, videos on YouTube that where people have videoed it when uh, a stranger is doing something like this. And it is devastating to parents. Mm-hmm. They know what's going on. 
they know why this is taking place. And it could be something as simple as um, the child thought that they were going to be picking up uh, Oreos at the grocery store and they get to the grocery store and they're all sold out of Oreos. That would be enough to start a major meltdown. And mm-hmm. there's nothing the parents can do that's going to prevent that from happening. Now, uh, they probably know the child enough to have some strategies to, to help them get out of it, but it's not the parent's fault. Uh, autism just makes uh, children mm-hmm. uh, and adults respond in ways that perhaps other people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'm thinking about right now is that you said at the start when we talk about this with apologetics, we can ask why God allows autism to happen. And at the same time when I heard about it, I was thinking that I'm not sure that everyone would agree with something like that, because if you ask me, my being on the spectrum, for me, it's it's a blessing in more ways. Yeah, I've got some hindrances and things like that I have to work on, but the way that a mind can work on the spectrum, it's really different, I think, and I think that gives me advantages. My wife, on the other hand, if they came out of a cure tomorrow, she'd be one of the first people in line. And I think it could help her out as well. So, I mean, I think we have to be clear about when you're on the spectrum, I'm not saying you are saying this, but when you're on the spectrum, it doesn't mean everything's a nightmare because many of us can live very good lives and very enjoy ourselves. Yeah, that that's, that's mm-hmm. true. Um, everyone mm-hmm. responds uh, in different ways and, yeah. and stuff. Uh, they have different uh, attitudes towards that. And there, within um, the autism community, there is a huge difference mm-hmm. of opinion towards uh, different treatments. So yeah. there are some parents out there who aren't looking just to have their child be safe. They want to have every single symptom of autism removed from their child. So, you know, everything including um, not wanting to give eye contact and and sometimes there's uh, hand movements that they do to try to uh, deal with stress and all that kind of stuff. They want their child to look exactly like a neurotypical child. On the other side of it are some people with autism uh, who would say that that's fine and they don't they don't uh, they they find it offensive Mm -hmm. the thought of any kind of change now where we're at um, you know we yeah our children have autism and 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 that's fine Uh, what we're more interested in in, is their safety that's the the main Mm -hmm. thing like we love them the way they are yeah our daughter has these funny gestures that she does that you can tell when she's happier or when she's mad. And it doesn't look, she doesn't look like a neurotypical child when she's doing that, but it doesn't matter. You know, we can, we understand, we can communicate. We just want to make sure that she's safe and right. that she's able to, to respond well. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all different for people. They all respond in, in different ways. And I, I think being on the Internet has really helped a lot of people out on the spectrum because I know for me it is much easier to speak with a tool of the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's for sure. 
there are uh, a lot of people, even nonverbal uh, people with autism, who have been able to demonstrate their level of intelligence on a computer. Uh, there are people who have been considered to be uh, globally delayed, and uh, and people just assume that you know this person is very very low functioning, and then they are given access to different technologies, mm-hmm. uh, including the internet. But there's there's other programs that are used where they are able to to uh, demonstrate where they're at, and you find out that they are uh, able to read as well as anyone, and they can even communicate with uh, typing. Now, we've experimented a bit with this with our son, and he was able to respond uh, better with typing out uh, his responses than trying to speak them. The problem for him and using an iPad is he gets caught up in things that uh, there are things that uh, about the iPad that he likes, you know, trying to, you know, take pictures with it or other things that get him so distracted that he doesn't use it for mm-hmm. communication. But he is able to do that. And I've heard those stories of uh, people have ended up going off to, uh, to college and to... Uh, University and they're still nonverbal, but they are able to communicate in that way, and that's uh, that's great. The the internet, uh, the ways that uh, people are able to connect with each other, it just seems to be uh, it has a better fit for people with autism. Well, let's talk about that, Tommy. You said you'd be explaining later on that nonverbal occurs for some listeners. It could be thing. Where, gee, Stephen, you're being interviewed by someone on a spectrum right now, and it's pretty obvious he's verbal. I mean, he's speaking, so nonverbal would simply just mean someone who doesn't speak, right? Yeah, well, that's what uh, some people would say. Now, uh, yeah, there are, uh, certainly with Asperger's, in, in uh, usually there's not too much difficulty with uh, communication. There, there might be some delays at the beginning, but the mm-hmm. communication comes. And even some people who have uh, some more severe autism uh, often do get the ability to communicate verbally later on in life. Uh, our children don't, and I suppose that doesn't have to be a, a permanent situation. It could happen at any time. But even so, when I say that my children are, are nonverbal, that doesn't mean that they can't speak. Mm-hmm. So if if I brought my daughter to visit with you uh, and she was hungry, she would probably come up to you and say, toast, please, or juice. Or if she saw the kind of uh, certain kind of food that she likes, she would say donut or, or whatever. So she's mm-hmm. used to words, uh, but she's not using it in the way that... Uh, that we are using language right now, uh, communicating in sentences and being able to express thoughts in that way. She really has learned these things uh, by rote, that she knows that if she says this particular word, she'll get this particular thing. Now, our son is different. He, too, is considered nonverbal, but he actually can speak. 
and he can speak in sentences. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know this for a long time, and it's really a great story how it all came about. Uh, my <laughs> yeah, it, my wife and I were uh, we were uh, sitting in bed, and and we knew that our our uh, son was still awake. He was reading his books, and we thought, oh, okay, you know, he's he's got to go to bed. Uh, he had uh, sleeping issues. Uh, even before that, so we really wanted to encourage him to go to bed. So I went downstairs and I said to him, you know, it's time to go to bed. And so what had happened, I had been shutting the light off on the wall and he just would turn the light back on when I would leave. So I unscrewed the light bulb from the ceiling. And as soon as it went dark, I heard this voice saying, Dad, turn the light back on. And so I turned the light back on, and I thought for sure it must be my other son because they were sharing a room, and uh, and he doesn't have autism. But I looked over, and nope, my younger son was sound asleep. And there's my my son Logan looking at me, I'm like okay, whatever. So I unscrew the light bulb again, and it goes dark, and uh, he says, Dad, please turn the light back on. And so I turn it back on, and I'm like, I don't know what, uh, what to think here, because I've never heard him talk. You wandered into a parallel universe when you turned the light off. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, I turned the light back on and said, you know what, because of that, you get a bit more time reading. And I went upstairs, and my jaw was hanging, and my wife said, what's, what's going on? I said, well, Logan's talking in sentences. And so uh, it was just, we were just rejoicing in that. And then 15 minutes later, I went back down and I said to him, you know what, Logan, I'm so glad that you're talking, but you really still have to go to bed. And so I, I turned the light, light off. And so there's been a few times where he's been able to talk. Uh, oftentimes it's when he is really upset, uh, especially if he's sad, sometimes when he's angry, where there he's motivated to speak uh, in a way that's uh, clear to other people. And uh, so that's, it's always, when it happens, I, I try to act like uh, it's an everyday thing. So I'll just talk back to him and I'll, I'll uh, enjoy it while it's there because I know it won't be there for long. But uh, he just doesn't feel the need. It's almost like, um, it's like someone who only speaks English or, or mainly speaks English and they go to Europe and they know that other people will speak English so they don't try to speak the the language of the country, the European country. Mm. That, that's kind of the way uh, he is. Uh, he can speak, but most often he can get along with just doing his other stuff, whether it's um, using the one word or using uh, gestures and that type of thing. Uh, he has another interesting way of communicating. He scripts lines from movies. Oh, yes. And you would think that what he's doing is using that line to say the words that he wants to express. But that's not exactly it. It actually took us uh, a long time to realize what was going on. What he's doing is picking lines from movies that express the emotion that he's feeling. So if there's a character in a movie who's angry, 
he will say that line not for the words, but for the um, the emotional expression in in the tone. So that's what he'll say. Or the same thing if he's happy. If there's a a, a line from a movie that expresses joy, he'll say that. He's not too worried about what the the uh, the meaning of the English words are. He just knows that that's expressing his emotion, and it, it's very interesting. Now we understand why he's doing it. Not everyone uh, else understands it. So we were in church, and our our pastor was preaching away, and mm-hmm. our son uh, just said, and not in a quiet way because he didn't. Uh, he doesn't care what people think. Uh, he just <laughs> says, "Just kill me now," <laughs> and it wasn't. It wasn't uh, because he was upset with the sermon or anything like that. He was. It's a line from uh, the Lion King. I think it's Lion King one and a half or something like that. Uh, that it expressed what he was feeling. Again, not the words, just the the tone of it. And so he said it. And uh, so that we've we've learned that that's his way of communicating. Not everyone else gets that. You really yeah. have to uh, to know them. I'm kind of wondering how many people are in VR. So I've been saying "Amen, brother, Amen" at the same time. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that I have been in uh, in church services where I wanted to say that. Yes. <laughs> and uh, how did your pastor respond? I think he put this in the book, but how did he respond? Yeah, he. Uh, well, it wasn't so much that particular uh, uh, time when he said that, but there was another time we were there, and uh, oftentimes our son he will moan. And uh, and make some strange noises. Uh, and again, it's the way he deals with the um, not just stress, but all the things that are are coming into him, the sounds and everything else. He he tries to uh, deal with that by making these weird sounds. So he was making uh, some loud sounds during the sermon, and our pastor stopped and said, "Isn't it great?" that everyone is welcome here in church. And, uh, you know, we just felt like, uh, we just felt so blessed that he did that because we know that he's making sounds. And it's not, um, it's not that we are encouraging him or anything like that. Uh, Sometimes people will look at us like, don't you know your son is making sounds? Well, yeah, (laughs) we know way more than you. We can tell when he's just about to make the sound, uh, but that's the way it is. And if you want to have your church to be autism-friendly, you're just going to have to deal with it. That's what happens. And, you know, it, it's, it, in order to, uh, to learn how to deal with this, I mean, you can just deal with it in terms of babies, right? Like, babies have yeah. always made sounds. And what happens... Uh, People will give the mother a dirty look until the mother gets out of the sanctuary with their child so they will stop making the sound. Well, that then comes over to how churches deal with autism. Mm -hmm. What happens when a a person with autism makes some sounds? They're expected to take that person with autism who might not be a young child. They could even be a a teenager uh, like our son is. And they're expected to get out of the sanctuary. Well, that's not right. That's not the way it is. Now, I understand. If, if someone is having a meltdown and is completely being disruptive, of, of course. I mean, anyone knows 
even and the, the parent of the, the person with autism uh, knows enough to do that. But some people with autism just like to make some noises, and mm -hmm. that's okay. That's, that's part of uh, the way it is for them, and we should just be glad that they are feeling comfortable enough to come to church, because I'll tell you, it is hard, as, as a, uh, an autism dad, it is hard to go to church with a child with autism. It, it's a lot easier to just stay home. I pastored for uh, quite a few years, and then I left my, my previous church, and I haven't started pastoring again. And when we left that church, there were many Sundays, more Sundays that, uh, than, than any, that we would just stay home, because yeah. why... Mm -hmm. I'm bothered trying to do that. Why deal with people having the funny looks and, and whatever? It, on my on one of my blogs, I tell people if you're going to start doing one thing uh, in order to become autism friendly, get rid of the stink eye, get rid of the the dirty looks, mm -hmm. because that is <clears throat> worst thing that you could do to a parent who has autism to give them that look, like how dare you bring a child into our sanctuary that is making a sound. Uh, it's, uh, it, it is the worst thing. So, yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad that we, uh, we have a church that where our pastor welcomes not just the sounds of people with autism, but uh, babies and mm -hmm. uh, anything else that's going on. It's, we just have a very welcoming church. And when <clears throat> you were talking about your son and your daughter both, I was thinking, well, I'm here on the spectrum and I'm verbal and I can relate to both of those experiences in some ways. For instance, I can easily go through a checkout line at the grocery store or something without saying a single word. And I can just point or hold something up and or nod or things like that. And that can be the way I communicate Sometimes that's just what happens. And it could be a situation where I might feel really nervous and just start handling things in that way. And there are many times, fortunately, when I, when I might freeze up like that, that my wife doesn't freeze up at the exact same situation. She can snap me out of it pretty easily. And then on the other hand, we talk about your son making noises. And I mean, my wife was one of the first ones to hear me making some strange noises, and she realized pretty quickly... That's a tune from a video game. That's what he's humming. Because <laughs> I, I, I get those tunes stuck in my head, and sometimes, depending on how I'm feeling of a situation, that's going to determine what kind of tune you're going to hear from me, because it's something that will match what I'm often feeling at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. yeah you can see how that, uh, that mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if, if we looked at different levels, that there's lots of people who have done that. We just... Yeah don't always, it, it's not always as obvious. But yeah, it's interesting to hear that you uh, you experience the same sort of thing. Yeah, I'm thinking, in fact, of one time with the uh, gestures and such, that something that I'm sure you saw from your kids on the spectrum is that we have very unusual diets a lot of times. And my wife and I, when we were engaged and not yet married, we were at a fundraiser at the seminary that I was at, and I said, we should go, hun, because if I'm going to be moving up and be apologetic field and such, I need to be getting to know people, and especially people who are going to come to a fundraiser. And so we're there, we're sitting with some people that we know from a seminary, all is going where, I mean, there's this big kind of country club event, such, and 
things were going fine, and then they bring the food along. Now, for me, there is absolutely nothing there that I'm interested in. And they ask, so, sir, what do you want? It's deer caught in the headlights at that point, and I'm absolutely frozen. It's like everyone's looking, and then Allie just speaks up and says, Oh, he's not having anything. Don't worry. He's just finicky. That's all it is. Mm. All the stress is relieved immediately. We can move on. And I was thinking, yeah, I uh, I picked the right woman here. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's really important to have someone mm. having a partner who uh, who understands and, and uh, can support you in that way. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Now, yeah, we, we've had, uh, speaking of food, we've had lots of issues with that as well and there have been times where uh, our son would eat uh, you know very little uh, I mean he would eat a lot but of very limited uh, variety oh, and yes. would work hard and work hard I was just telling uh, my uh, someone in my family that when our, our son was young uh, he was eating watermelon. He was eating it from the wedge and, and he really liked that. And I thought, well, it, it might be easier for him if I cut it into squares. And when I offered, to, offered it to him in the squares or the cubes, uh, he, did, he didn't want it. He wouldn't eat it. Mm-hmm. So the only way I could eat him, get him to eat the cubes is I would bring the, the wedge of watermelon to his mouth and then just as he opened his mouth, I would toss the cube in there uh, because he, even though it was the same thing, it just that little change stopped him from wanting to eat it. Now we have opposite problems with uh, both our uh, our son and daughter. Is that they will keep eating, and when they come for a visit, we have visits with them once a week. Uh, they will continually go into the kitchen to look for food, and they just will not stop uh, because. I, get, I think that's part of the way they, they deal with stress or, or whatever. Uh, but they will just, they'll never get to a point where they're full. They'll just keep eating and eating. And so that's a, just a difference that has come up, and, and I'm sure it'll change again as they get older. Now, we are talking also about churches. What are, what are some of the big hurdles other than the stink eye that churches often have with autism? Well, uh, we've touched a bit on the idea of making assumptions about what a child with autism has. Uh, people have those preconceptions where they're, whether it's uh, Rain Man or something else. I know uh, I've had many people say, oh, I, I bet your children don't like to be touched because they've heard so many stories of people with autism who just can't handle being touched. And I would say, well, no, it's actually the exact opposite. Uh, they are affectionate almost to a fault. That they would not hesitate to uh, hug a uh, complete stranger. You know, when we're in the uh, in in line for something, our uh, son will just re- if uh, there's someone standing in front of us, he'll reach out and you know touch their back or stroke their arm or something like that. So they're complete opposite that way. So the the making of uh, assumptions is mm-hmm. something that's pretty uh, pretty serious. Uh, another thing that is important is uh, the safety issues. That is a huge concern as well, and that can be manifest in a number of ways. One of them is 
what we've talked about with my son uh, being a wanderer or a runner. Mm -hmm. You have to find out, like if you have a person with, uh, uh, with autism come to the church, you need to find out from the, the parents or the other family what are the needs there because perhaps that child isn't a runner but if they are a runner you're going to have to take that into account and mm -hmm. there might have to be an extra person in Sunday school or even just in general for the congregation to be aware that when there's an open door that they're going to run right through it and even when I was the pastor of the church my son took off and got out the door and ran right in front of a car. Now, thankfully, the person in the car was paying attention and was able to stop right away. But that was happening in the church I was pastoring. And I'm sure that kind of stuff happens in, in many churches where people are just not watching. And the way our son is, is that he will be good 95% of the time. And he gets people's gets people to let their defenses down and then he is there. So you have to talk to the parents and find out. I recommend that there is an interview uh, with the parents to see what exactly are the needs mm -hmm. there. And that, that's true for the running, but there's other things as well because there might be uh, an issue with... Um, Loud noises, for instance. Pardon? Loud noises, for instance. Loud noises, yeah. To see how that how they're affected by that. Um, the, the one I was thinking of was aggression. Oh, Sometimes yeah. uh, I, something could happen. Maybe uh, I, another child uh, takes a book or, or takes a toy, and the person with autism might hit them, might smack them right across the face. Now. Uh, they're not thinking, oh, wait a minute, this is Sunday school, I'm not allowed to punch someone <coughs> in the face. That, that process is, is not going through their mind. Uh, they're thinking, wait, you took what I had, or you took what I want, and I want it back. And so those kinds of things happen. I, our daughter, that's the way she is. Uh, she's done that kind of stuff in school. She's even done it to her teachers. So you have to have those talks with the parents to find out, uh, what will set them off? Uh, wh what kinds of things will, will get them upset? We talked about food, and the food thing uh, is important to know because if you try to uh, have a snack and it's something that they will not eat or something that they're really afraid of, then mm -hmm. you don't do that kind of thing because it will get the person upset and you could have a meltdown. So those those are some of the things that I would want to um, to do. Now, in, in my in my book, I, I talk about how to help people with autism, and it, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But the other part of it is the ministry to the entire family. That's something that I think is mm -hmm. very important, and actually will benefit the uh, the person with autism as well. If the church is ministering effectively to the parents, that will trickle down to how the person with autism is mm -hmm. feeling as well. And I don't think churches really think about this. They just think, oh, we have a child with autism, we will have a safe Sunday school, we will have some appropriate curriculum, and we're good. But you're not good. There's 
a whole other side of the, the story that has to be addressed. You know, when you were talking about this, I was also thinking that <clears throat> there can be people like my wife and myself who are high-functioning on the spectrum. So when we go to church, we don't have our parents there with us to advocate for us, but we also do try and go to the pastor and everyone else and introduce ourselves and say, hey, we want you to know this about us up front. <clears throat> and fortunately, we have an excellent church where our pastor's just fine with us, and our friends all know about this. And so when we're with our couples group, we're going to say, yeah, we're going to see some eccentric behavior, but hey, that's okay. We know these people and we love these people. Yeah, that's that's right. It's, it's important to have that communication. And it's also important for people to wait until they have the full story before mm-hmm. making judgments. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and, and I'm not going to uh, to say this about you because I, I don't know you well enough to, to, to make this kind of thing, but I know that there are people with autism, people who are high-functioning autism, uh, who are high functioning with autism, uh, who sometimes come across as being rude, and it, it's not, yeah, it, it's not in a nasty way. And, yeah. and what I'm I'm thinking uh, specifically some interviews I I have seen with um, Temple Grandine, and I don't know if you've had a chance to see some of her interviews. She is very very intelligent. She has a PhD, and uh, you know speaks all over the world on different things. And she has she has autism, mm-hmm. and in some of the interviews, like when she's done talking, she just takes off her microphone and puts it down and walks away because in her mind, the interview's done. Whereas someone else might wait until something else is said, and maybe we'll we we'll sit around and, and and chat before getting up and leaving or, or something else. Uh, and, you know, Temple Grandine is not trying to be rude. She's mm-hmm. not trying to do anything bad. It's just in her mind, the interview's done, and she's going to do what uh, what she does. And I've, uh, I've talked to some people uh, also with uh, high-functioning autism on the, on the telephone. I'll, I'll talk with them, and when they're done, they hang up. They don't necessarily say goodbye or anything like that, or there's no uh, wrap-up to the conversation uh, that some people might expect when they're done talking, they hang up. And again, there's no intention of being rude. Mm-hmm. It's just that's the way they communicate. Now, thankfully, in, the, in those cases, I knew that the person had autism, and, and so I figured that, that you know there was going to be something about that, and so I, I was willing to, uh, um, to deal with that. But... As you said, you have that conversation with your pastor. You have that conversation with people in your couples group. And when people know, they're they're understanding. Yeah. As long as as long as they know why it is that certain things are happening. Yeah. When you are talking about the way that we communicate, I mean, for me, this is. I mean, yes, I'm often told I'm rude many times, and I'm not really intending to be, and this is one of those times where it's good to have someone around, because I'll ask Allie, do you think I was being prideful, do you think I was speaking too much, things of that sort, and speaking too much can be a common one, because especially if we're in a place and we're discussing the Bible or something like that, I want to go on and on and on and on, but uh, when it comes to things like a phone call or something like that, in fact, I am also one of those people who says, let's cut to the chase, you called, you called for a reason, you want to talk about something, let's talk about that. 
don't give me any of this small talk stuff because I cannot stand the small talk. I want to talk about the substance matter. Well, you know what? On that uh, on that point, I can agree with you mm-hmm. that uh, I, I'm very much like that myself. And uh, there's been many times that I've seen some uh, autistic traits in my own personality and mm-hmm. my own uh, behavior. And in terms of uh, phone calls, uh, my my wife uh, she she smiles at me when I've uh, had a phone call and and someone tries to do the the uh, the small talk. Uh, and I'm like, no, let's let's deal with what we have to deal with, and then let's hang up, and, and we'll be yeah. done. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's that's. And people have to realize that that's how people are, and you don't make them do it. If you know that this yeah. person has autism, don't make them do the small talk because there are certain things that are more difficult than others. I I was talking about Temple Grandine, and. Uh, I heard uh, in an interview with her, she said that she has no problem writing books. Writing books comes natural to her because she has the intelligence and she has the the, uh, the dedication and uh, the discipline to do it. What's more difficult for her is when people come up to her and say, can you autograph the book? And they're expecting not just the, the uh, signature, but they want that little snazzy message uh, that goes with the autograph. And she says she can't do that. Like, nothing comes to mind there. Mm -hmm. Like, she'd rather write another book than have to uh, come up with some kind of uh, neat little message to put in the the front of the book. So, some things that other people might find difficult, a person with autism will find very easy. And then the opposite is true as well. You know, one thing I was thinking of, in fact, when you were talking about that, is we actually live next door to my parents. And so many times, I think, geez, does our son just not care for us because he just doesn't call as much to them? And I think, I don't really need to call. They're right there. That's all I know. And they can say, well, son, why don't you and I come up and visit us sometimes? Because you don't need a reason. You just come by and visit. And we've told them, that does not make sense to us. When that happens, we feel like we're intruding. You need to tell us a specific time and a specific reason why you want us to come up, or else it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, this this all fits into what we're we're talking about for people to to communicate and to uh, to be aware and not expect yeah. people to be different than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, People with autism are going to act in a different way. And just like people, really all people are are different in that way. So uh, there's lots of people um, who have no interest in talking about apologetics. And like, for example, if I tried to have an hour-long discussion with my wife about apologetics, that would be the stupidest thing I could do because she Same has here. <laughs> no desire. Mm-hmm. And I can try it and try it and try it, and all it will do yeah. is create frustration. Well, if, if we wouldn't do that in that situation, why try to get a person uh, with autism to do small talk or to do other things that are abstract? Because that's uh, part of what's 
we, we've talked a little bit about uh, the being literal yeah. uh, and the need for being concrete. Uh, in, in terms of literal, when you were talking about that, it made me think about uh, a time our daughter was pulling leaves off a church, uh, off a off a tree or a bush, and I said to her, uh, Abby, no, thank you. And so she took her hand off that leaf, and then she put her hand on another leaf, and I said, Abby, no, thank you. And so she removed her hand and went to another leaf. So in her mind, she's thinking, I'm just telling her don't pull that particular leaf. Right. She is not able to, to move that uh, understanding to don't touch any leaf on the tree. Uh, so that's part of the literal thing. Now this really becomes an issue when you start talking uh, about uh, spiritual things. Now I get asked a lot yeah. about how you talk to a person with autism about the gospel and about uh, things of the spirit and really the way that a lot of Christians talk about uh, the gospel oh, just does not work oh, like you tell someone with autism you need to ask Jesus in your heart well <laughs> how's he going to fit right <laughs> I, I was thinking of washed by the blood immediately like, exactly yeah like that stuff does not matter or it does not make sense uh, to a person. Really, it, it it doesn't make sense to a lot of people without uh, autism either. But you really have to think carefully about how you're going to, to talk about this stuff. And I'm thankful that actually Christianity is a very concrete religion. So if you... I, I think one of the opportunities that we have is when we're talking about the afterlife... To talk about the resurrection rather than to talk about heaven, because right. heaven is so <laughs> abstract. What, what does heaven look like? How does how do you interact with anyone in heaven when you have no eyeballs or uh, you know no physical body at all? And like, what does it mean just to be a spirit and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it's hard for anyone to understand. But if you start talking to someone with autism like that, there's going to be a whole added level of confusion. But when you start talking to them about the resurrection of the body, now all of a sudden it's starting to make a little bit more sense. It's, it's more concrete to, of what your life going to be like. Well, it's going to be kind of like what it is now, but better. You know, you're not getting sick and you're not... Um, your body is not wearing out and, and, and all that kind of thing. So th there are ways to talk about it, but you have to be as concrete as possible. And uh, and you you can't use figures of speech in the same way that, that other people use. And I actually think that that's a good thing for us to be thinking about uh, because it helps us to be more precise in the way we share the gospel with anyone because there's so many misconceptions about what that is. When people say they're spiritual, what's the, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a, That doesn't tell you anything. Uh, there are really good, devout Christians who would consider themselves spiritual, and there are atheists who would consider themselves spiritual. So that, that label doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that we can actually learn from people with autism in order to be able to express the gospel in a, in a better way. But I'll tell you, when it comes to uh, 
children who are on the severe end of the spectrum, the whole idea of uh, the person becoming a Christian becomes a lot more complicated. Now, uh, they know things. Uh, a lot of it is because of uh, Veggie Tales. Our uh, children love Veggie Tales, even though. So does uh, my wife. <laughs> yeah, it's good because they, they they are well done and they're they're enjoyable. And uh, our our children, uh, I think, for as long as they live, will be fans of Veggie Tales. So they have some stuff there. But Eric Metaxas uh, actually had a hand in VeggieTales. So. That's right. And Lyle the the uh, kindly Viking. I think he wrote that one. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, that's. He, he's come a long way from uh, <laughs> from that. But uh, yeah, I mean, VeggieTales is great, and it, it's a good thing uh, to express some of these these uh, truths of uh, of Christian life. Uh, but I'll tell you, my. Uh, Basically, I just leave it in God's hands. I, I pray, and I pray that God would reveal himself to them in a way that they would understand and in a way that they would be able to respond to. Now, what that looks like, I don't know. For all I know, my 14-year-old son is a Christian right now, and he, he may be. I don't know. Uh, because he's not able to I- express that kind of thing uh, the way I would I would want him to. But you know, we talk about God. I get him to uh, to say grace uh, when he's over for a meal, and that's there. And we I don't think that we should um, withhold God talk from people, especially if they're on the severe end. You, you shouldn't withhold that from them. Yeah. You, you, you do what you can, but we just don't have all the answers. I'm just trusting in God's grace that he, he understands where they're at in terms of intellectual level. And, uh, and you know, the, the gospel talks about uh, uh, that those who, who uh, have much will be judged by that. And, and some people just don't have the capacity to... Uh, maybe understand things that we would think of as essential, like things about the Trinity. I don't think my daughter will ever understand anything about the the Trinity, and but I don't think that uh, she's going to be judged for that either. Uh, but it's it's something that weighs on people, uh, on parents, on Christian parents of uh, of children who have disabilities. How does that all work? And I think there, that's a place where we just we rely on God. Uh, as much as we can, and we do what we can. We try to be that Christian presence, and and hope that um, that God will intervene in in some miraculous way. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that right now, uh, this is the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm your host Nick Peters, and we're talking with Stephen Bedard right now on how to make your church autism friendly. But if you're listening next week, my friend Paul Compton, I went to Bible college with him, and shared the same seminary for a while and he's a pastor in New Hampshire now and he's got a son with autism as well on the on the Asperger side and he's going to be here talking with us so I hope you're going to be here we're going to be talking about fatherhood and apologetics with him and autism especially but for now we've got Stephen Bedard here talking about how to make your church autism friendly now when you're talking about these kinds of terms to avoid and such I usually prefer to use the term Christianese to describe mm-hmm. this, and 
uh, again, my wife and I are very different on this spectrum here and how we relate to things because I'm more the ones who grasp the intellectual ideas. I mean, give me a book by N.T. Wright and I am going to be happy for a long time. Give her one of that and she'll say, what's this? Uh, I'd rather hear the, hear the music. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. the music can be okay for me, but I really, but I can really enjoy it at church when I hear it. You, you may now be seated. <laughs> and, and then when you, if someone comes to me and says, well, how is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That term doesn't make much sense to me. And as I was telling someone recently, I said, prayer can be very hard as well if you're on the spectrum because it's hard enough to relate to ordinary people. How do you know what you're supposed to do when it comes to someone like God, for instance? I think those are all things we need to be aware of. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's uh, what you're saying is exactly uh, exactly the case. And it, as I said before, I think that if we learn to be sensitive to these things and uh, learn from the people with autism that are around us, it will actually help us to have a more precise understanding of of uh, of the faith. Now, for example, uh, the relationship thing. Uh, I I would be on the same side as you. Yeah. I'll have people uh, say to me, "Well, uh, Christianity isn't a religion; it's a relationship." Uh. And then I'll ask them, "Okay, how do you how do you uh, interact with Jesus in that relationship? What do you do?" And they say, "Well, I." You know, I go to church and I read my Bible and uh, I pray and, uh, you know, I sing worship songs and, and whatever. And I'll say, well, that kind of sounds like religious activity to me. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with the relationship with Jesus, but you're, the way you have a relationship with an invisible person or someone, you, not, not that uh, Jesus is invisible, but mm-hmm. uh, someone you can't uh, physically see in front of you, is a lot like religion, and so yeah, it, it's uh, that's that's where I'm at. And again, I as I said, I have some of these uh, aspects to my personality where uh, autism just seems to make sense uh, in the way people uh, interact and interpret things. So I, I actually think it, it's going to make all of us better to listen to these voices, and that's that's part of what it means to be autism friendly as well. Uh, autism friendly doesn't mean you let people with autism into the church and you deal with them and hope they don't make uh, too much noise. That's not autism friendly. Uh, any church can do that. Uh, autism friendly is about valuing everyone yep. in the congregation, whether they're neurotypical or not, mm-hmm. and seeing that they have a role to play. And I, I mentioned this in in the book, but uh, when I was pastoring at my last church, the uh, one of the deacons in the church came up to me after the service and said, um, "Steve, your your preaching's uh, your preaching's fine, but I got to tell you, the thing that's really transformed this church is your children. That's the thing that's really made a difference." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, well." <laughs> I, I thought my preaching was a little bit better than <laughs> just okay, but that's all right. Uh, you know, I, I understand what he's saying, that uh, having uh, our children there what made a big difference, and they were transformed by that experience. And uh, so they had, our children had 
a spiritual role uh, in that congregation, and that has to be valued. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so in some cases, um, people with autism can fully participate in terms of, you know, reading scripture or greeting or whatever, and that's great. But sometimes they're not able to do that, but they still have a role in the church. And uh, I know for many people in our church, even if they they don't see our children very often, they hear about the things that God is doing in their life. And we see little miracles taking place all the time. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, our congregation rejoices. And so, again, uh, our children are having an impact on the congregation. What, and, and this is true for autism, and it's true for, for everyone as well. I mean, whether the, the disability is, uh, is um, a developmental, or if it's physical, or if it's uh, uh, mental, uh, it doesn't matter. Everyone is created in God's image, and we are expected to, to treat each other uh, accordingly. And if we don't, we're going to be held accountable. And I have heard too many stories of churches who uh, say that they they value excellence above all, and because of that, there's no room for people with disabilities because uh, they think that the way they impact their community is to put on the perfect show. Oh and gosh. the perfect show does not <laughs> include people with disabilities. Well... I, I strongly disagree there, mm-hmm. uh, and th- there is a there was a uh, high profile example, and I, I won't uh, mention the the church, but it was one of the the big uh, famous uh, mega churches, and someone they were having an Easter an Easter program, and there was a, a child with a disability, and um, the ushers came and said, yeah, you know, we've been asked to have him removed from the the sanctuary because it's it, he'll get in the way of the uh, the presentation that they're doing. You know, he, he'll be a distraction. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, how can you possibly do something like that? And it's not just that. We have heard from friends, uh, not necessarily in terms of autism, but other things, uh, other similar um, uh, disorders. And they same thing. They're asked to to leave the sanctuary. Uh, they're, they're asked to basically stay hidden so that the the church can put on the show. But I, I don't see anything like that in the New Testament. I told you my apologetics is based on uh, a New Testament perspective, and it's the same thing when it comes uh, to pastoring, to leadership, uh, to understanding autism. Of course, the New Testament doesn't talk about autism, but it does talk about what the, the church looks like. And I see no evidence of the early church putting on the show and uh, making uh, a presentation the way that uh, people will be entertained and then, therefore, uh, they'll respond. I actually think that if, if someone comes off the street and sees the way a church embraces people who are different, uh, whether it's autism or, or something else, I think God can use that in a way uh, 
in a much more powerful way than if that church has got the uh, the smoke machines and the laser beams and the everything yeah. else going on with the with the uh, the great show. So uh, I I think that is super important for churches to to embrace what it means to be autism friendly. I've really been thinking about this lately. That uh, even before they get to being autism friendly, churches are going to have to learn just to be friendly. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the first step. Um, but yeah, it, it, when people are concerned about uh, you know church growth and all the other things that go along with it, I think that if churches became autism friendly, uh, disability friendly, uh, all of those things, that they will be positioned to be a church that can have an impact on their community. Yeah. One other thing about the something is that I often encourage churches that they need to be apologetics friendly, and I think that's across the board also. If churches start taking apologetics more seriously, if um, people are taking Christianity more seriously, but this is also a great way to reach people who are high-functioning, who are very intellectually oriented, because when we hear this kind of stuff, this is the stuff that connects. I mean, at our church, for instance, uh, my wife really likes the music. She likes the people. I like the people too, and I can like the music. But, I mean, she gets what she wants. But for me, the main thing is, this is a church that takes the life of a mind seriously. Like I've said on your before, or we have a thing in that you can text in a question during a service, and the pastor comes out and answers it. And many times, they are very good answers. I don't always agree with everything, but they're serious answers. And I said before that, I actually write out the curriculum for the church. And it, it's something that I really enjoy doing. It, it establishes that connection. And what people are on the spectrum usually have is that, I think that if we are interested in something, there's no such thing usually between um, no interest and total interest. It is one of the two. And so if we get interested in something, like, all right, we are interested in it. And if you can get someone on the spectrum to be interested in Christianity and the things of God, like, get get out of the way. It's going to get intense. Yeah, that's right. If you can find the motivation that is there, mm -hmm. uh, they will be full in. And that's that's the way it is. Uh, and it might take some work to figure out where that connection is, but when it happens, as you said, they're uh, they're very excited. Uh, at the group home where our son was, uh, he, they were trying to get him involved in some kind of sport, and uh, they would oh, gosh. <laughs> they would do everything right, like okay, here's basketball, let's go bowling, whatever, and not interested. Now, mm -hmm. son, even though he's a 14 year old boy. He absolutely loves Frozen. He is just, you know, just totally obsessed with Frozen. So they gave him an opportunity to go snowshoeing. Well, wouldn't you know it, he is a pro at snowshoeing because that's in Frozen. Mm -hmm. And the instructor uh, who took him snowshoeing was convinced that this kid had done it before, that this was not the first time he was on it. And we explained, no, he's never been snowshoeing before, but he's motivated now because mm -hmm. there's a connection with something that he's interested and he's willing to put his full effort. So if you can do that in that way, 
there's got to be ways to connect people with God based mm-hmm. on where they're at. So that could be a um, an intellectual uh, intellectual arguments, intellectual expression of the faith. And for other people, it might be something like art. That that's yeah. what's going to uh, yeah. to get them. That would get my wife in. Yeah. So we have to be uh, aware of aware of that, and and to be willing to put the effort into finding out what it is um, that connects people. And again, there's uh, you know we find these things happening in the Bible as well. Not everyone uh, is uh, comes to faith in the exact same way. And mm-hmm. you know, in, in one case, it is uh, uh, a huge group listening to Peter preach. Another case is the guy in a chariot uh, having a one-on-one discussion with Philip. Uh, you know, it, it's not mm-hmm. the same way, uh, but the job gets done, and and God's going to use more than one uh, more than one process to to bring that about. Yeah, I like to uh, remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast here, and. <clears throat> we really try to bring you a great product regularly, but that costs time and research costs money and things of that sort. And folks, we could really, really use your support. I know we're in trying economic times, but giving is something very, very biblical. And especially the apologetics ministry, if you support it, because you see what's going on in the world all around you, and the apologetics ministry is especially here in America, it's probably the main force keeping us from having secularism or the New Age movement or or even the homosexual movement take over in our country today. That We need people who are going to defend Orthodox Christianity, and that's what we try to do here. And I, <clears throat> I would just love to get your support in doing that. Say, hey, uh, I like this work that you're doing. I like the work that you put together to get these great people on for the show and Stephen just my my humor there I'm very sarcastic <laughs> and and I like the blogs that you're putting out I want to be behind all that and if you can do that we would really appreciate it Just go to deeperwaters.ddns.net that's my website there's a, a donate button there and when you click that button, you'll go to Risen Jesus. That's the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. That's my in-laws right there, Ari's parents. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. You make a donation there, and then you email me. My email's on our page. Or you email Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation, and I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. She will make sure that we get our donation, and it will be tax-deductible. Now, we also do have ebooks that are available. I've co-written two right now. Uh, actually, three now, I think about it. I've co-written Defining Inerrancy and co-written our latest one, Groundless, which is a look at Dan Barker and his atheism in the Freedom from Religion Foundation. I co-wrote with an atheist a book where we dialogued on God and natural evil. And I have my own ebook that I've written called A Creed for the Ages, A Look at the Apostles' Creed. And if you purchase any of these, then some of that will go to support us here at Deeper Waters. 
And then we have a link to our store on the side. And if you purchase books through Amazon that we recommend, we'll get some of it. Yes, I still need to update that. I'm a terrible procrastinator in many ways. I plan on working on that tomorrow. And we would just need your support in August. Monthly donors are best. And please also consider going to iTunes and leaving a really good review. I really love seeing those reviews. Um, Stephen, do you have any, any uh, organization or ministry you'd like to encourage people to donate to? Well, if someone wants to donate, I would suggest that you donate to uh, Deeper Waters. That would be uh, <laughs> that would be my suggestion. I, I don't have uh, I do have a ministry, but um, I don't really uh, have uh, donations as a, a major part of uh, the funding of that. So um, people are welcome to uh, to purchase my books, and you can get them on my uh well they're available on uh, on Amazon but you can find out what they are on my website stephenjbedard.com but if you have the uh, I'm not set up at all in terms of giving people uh charitable receipts so if you're looking for a donation uh please consider donating to deeper waters yeah when we were, when I was giving that little plug just now and I made my little sarcastic remark I was saying that that's something that people can misunderstand also about those of us on the spectrum is that for instance for me I like to say I'm fluent in English and sarcasm and people will look and say well if you're being sarcastic you're being rude to people and I say no this is my way of having fun with people and in fact if I'm not sarcastic with you you might want to consider if you're on good terms with me <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I, I've I'm, I've fallen into that myself. Uh, my sense of humor is uh, a little bit different than some people's, and and not everyone gets it. And sometimes I've made the mistake of of trying to use my uh, my humor on the internet, and the internet doesn't necessarily get it all yeah. across. And and I've said things that uh, that I thought were funny. Um, I, one example is uh, I put on Facebook that uh, I believe that um, oh you know it just it just left me now uh, that uh, what is it when the Holy Spirit goes away that's apostasy no at, at the, with the apostles that the, the gifts of the Spirit died with the apostles cessationism cessationism that's right so I, I put on Facebook I believe that cessationism died with the apostles and it's, it's, I mean you can't it doesn't even make sense right it's just my, that's my mm -hmm. sense of humor but I had people coming to me and they're tra you know quoting scripture telling me why the Holy Spirit's still around and I'm like I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not saying that the gifts of the Spirit are gone. All I'm saying is that I have a strange sense of humor, but it doesn't always, uh, doesn't always come yeah. across. So I hear, I hear what you're saying. You know, when we talk about different aspects of the church, I think one thing that people on the spectrum might sometimes have a hard time with is when you're at church, and I'm not saying churches shouldn't do this, I think they should, but when you're told to sort of meet and greet. That can be a difficult time, although me, I always try and take advantage of it because I look at Ari and say, you know, you remember, we're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss here. Then I, I always ask, her, did I already greet you? But, but I think for some people on the spectrum, we're very hesitant to reach out and shake hands with people we don't know and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, and churches should be sensitive to that and not to mm-hmm. not to expect those things. You know, uh, some churches uh, have become more sensitive in terms of uh, how they do communion. Mm-hmm. That a lot of churches now will have gluten-free um, bread oh, and stuff. Yeah, and so, and sometimes we'll have water instead of the grape juice for people who can't have the sugar and, and that type of thing, and that's great. But take that right across the board and be uh, just be sensitive to everyone's need, not just in communion, but uh, in the way worship is. Uh, one example that I give uh, is if you have people with autism regularly coming to your church, it's probably not the right place to have a uh, long meditative prayer. You know, sometimes oh, yeah. services that say, uh, you know, we're just going to spend, you know, five minutes in prayer, uh, a silent prayer, and we're just going to bathe in the presence of God. Well, you're just asking a person with autism to make all kinds of noise. I mean, they can't handle that. I can't handle that myself, really. Yeah, uh, I, I'm but, done uh, after one minute. Yeah, <laughs> I you, I would probably break the uh, the silence by snoring because it mm-hmm. it just puts me to sleep. But uh, yeah, it you it's just not the right thing. So you have to be asking how does this fit with uh, how you embrace someone with autism. I give another example in uh, in the book. We had started attending this church, and it was going fairly well. And then they decided to make a change in which they had uh, the coffee time in the middle of the service. So they'd have half the service, and then everyone would get up and walk around, and they would have coffee and visit with one another. And then after 15 minutes or so, uh, sometimes longer, then they would go back and sit down and have the rest of the service. Well, our son couldn't deal with that. He knew based on his previous experience attending that church, that when people get out of their seats and start drinking coffee, that it's the end of the service. And so we would have to leave in halfway through the service because that's what that's where he was at. He was just not built to have that kind of change happen in the service. And so if people are taking autism-friendly seriously then they have to be aware of these things. Yeah, I'm also thinking that sometimes during a service, it might not be a bad thing if someone on the spectrum is also allowed to do something else that wouldn't be noisy, but something that they can do as well, because many times, if you're on the spectrum, it can be difficult to get your mind fixed on just one thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 we have to be creative in finding out ways uh, to to make those connections. I completely agree. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking, for instance, that my in-laws took a little while to get used to me because they'd be talking to me and I'd be sitting there and I'd have like the phone, the Kindle or something like that and I'd be doing some sort of game or something and they'd think, at, at first well, he's supposed to be talking to us and he's just playing a game. That's a a bit rude. And then they realize after a while, no, he's actually fully involved in the conversation. It's just the way his mind works. That 
he he has to have multiple things to keep him occupied. I I sometimes think this can be some makes it difficult for me to rest at night sometimes because I don't have those multiple things going on. Even my wife and I are watching a TV show. Still got the Kindle open. Something of that so I'm doing two things at once. That's right. And uh, this is part of the the whole awareness thing that needs uh, needs to be going on. And that this is what's great about April, uh, that we can have autism awareness and we can get these little things out that mm. many people just do not know. Like, I think the, the idea that there's something called autism out there, that uh, there are many people with autism out there, that people are aware of. But all these little things, uh, a lot of churches have absolutely no idea. And that's why I'm glad that you're, you're doing this mm-hmm. for the, the month of April and mm-hmm. uh, having these interviews where people can share mm-hmm. the, the nitty-gritty of what it's like to try to interact in church uh, with autism, whether the, the person has autism or whether they're a parent of someone uh, with autism, because this has to get out there and people have to be aware and have to be tolerant. I mean, there's so much talk about tolerance uh, in uh, in society right now and, and aimed at, at certain groups. But what I'm not hearing and is not getting out there is the importance of tolerance for people uh, with autism and with other disabilities. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what this is sort of a, a pet peeve I have, it's because other groups have the uh, lobbying ability and the money to get out there to say we want our rights lifted up whereas uh, you know someone like my son or my daughter even when they become adults they're never going to be able to do that they're never going to be able to, to stand up and say I want uh, legal changes I want uh, uh, this to be uh, put in place or, or that mm. to happen uh, so that my rights are protected it's just not going to happen and so we have to the the, uh, the church, I think, has a, an opportunity and a responsibility to do what we can. That doesn't necessarily mean legal changes, but we at least have to uh, demonstrate and proclaim that everyone is created in the, the image of God and that uh, people with autism uh, need to be um, respected and embraced, uh, not just tolerated, but you know, really welcomed into the church because they are as much uh, children of God as as anyone else. Yeah, I'm also thinking that one aspect worth discussing that many people on the spectrum are very different on is that of eye contact. That if I'm talking to someone, very rarely will I look them in the eye, and when I do, it has to be a strained focus. I have to mentally tell myself, making eye contact, making eye contact, Something of that sort. Uh, there, there are some exceptions I see to this kind of thing. When I'm talking to Allie sometimes, if I have to tell her something really important, or I want to tell her something very affectionate, I say, "Hun, look at me here. And I'll wait until she can look a lot of times. And then I've also seen her with her counselor. And the counselor, if she wants to stress something, she will say, Allie, look at me. And say, but... You really can't expect that a lot of times with people on the spectrum, and it's not because they're being rude. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the, the same thing with uh, with our children. And we've had people uh, thinking that it was rude and trying 
to make them give eye contact. And there's absolutely no reason for that. If they don't want to give eye contact, they're not going to give eye contact. Mm -hmm. Now, it has been interesting to watch as they have gotten older that they sometimes will now give eye contact with certain people. Like my daughter, she's very much a daddy's girl. She is Mm -hmm. so connected to me. And so uh, she gives me eye contact all the time. She loves to just put her face into my face and just look me in the eyes, and, and that's who she is. Now, she won't do that with, with other people. Uh, you know, she will might look at their face but not look at their eyes, or uh, she might look uh, around uh, in some other direction, but that's who she is uh, with me. And my son, <laughs> what I'll do is I'll be watching television, and I'll just happen to glance over at him, and he's looking at me at the eye, in the eyes, and then as soon as he realizes that I saw him do that, he'll look away. Uh, he wants to look at me, but he doesn't want me to see uh, that I'm look that he's looking at me. So those things happen. It's, it has nothing to do with uh, being rude, because if you think about it, uh, it's it's really in a way a, a social construct. This idea yeah. that you have to look at someone in the eyes. I mean, why not look at a person's nose when you talk to them? Yeah. I mean. Uh, it, it's not as if the eyes are the person. Yeah, uh, you know, there, there are even some cultures where if you look someone in the eyes, it seems like it's taken like a challenge to them. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there, there's nothing that is essential for that, and and people have to realize that er- everyone's different, and it is okay. And when you try to push something like that, when you try to make someone do something that they're uncomfortable with. It just makes them uh, frustrated and not want to be there. Yep. Um, I, this isn't exactly uh, autism, but for for one example, I am not a hugger. I do not like to hug right. people. I love hugging my wife. I yep. love hugging my, uh, all five of my children. I don't want to hug anyone else at all. Mm. And yep. sometimes I'm at churches. I'll visit a church, and they are a hugging church. Like, you walk in, you're the... First time you've ever walked through the doors, and they are hugging you, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "What are you doing? Like, get your hands off me! I don't want, yeah. I don't want to hug." Yeah. And by doing something like that, you're making these assumptions that everyone else has to be uh, like you, and that just doesn't work. I realize that the intention there is to say we are a friendly church, but there's other ways to demonstrate that friendliness. Yeah. And I think being sensitive and respectful towards people who are different is perhaps a better way to uh, demonstrate how, how it is to be friendly. Yeah, I'm thinking of two different things right now. First off, that uh, I'm kind of like you in that regard. I don't really like being touched, except for by my wife. And then it's like, I can't get enough of this stuff here. But anyone else, it's, no, no, I don't want to be touched, okay? It, it, it's a boundary that's been crossed. And then... When we lived in Charlotte, there was a lady that we knew that really likes spending time with Allie, and I said, she's nice, I, I like her, but she's so huggy. She comes right up, she hugs me, and things of that sort, and I don't like it. And all I did was I called her and said, hey, um, Allie would like to spend time with you, but yes, she just doesn't want to be hugged by you, and things like that so much. And I was kind of scared to say something like that, you know, because someone could take me and said, oh, Okay, so she just stopped doing that around Allie, and they had a wonderful friendship from that point on. It, it was just fine. 
Well, that really reinforces uh, one of the main things I'm, I wanted mm-hmm. to get across here is the importance of communication. Right. You know, if we can express, uh, and, and I realize that sometimes that uh, a child with autism is not able to, uh, to communicate the way we want, but the parents will know. The parents will know if that person wants to be touched or not. Uh, that person will know uh, the kinds of behaviors that are that are acceptable and that kind of thing. So if a church wants to be autism friendly, take the time to do your homework, sit down with the parent, and even have a, a one-on-one with, with the child as well. Get to know the person before you make... Mm-hmm. Uh, assumptions of what ministry is supposed to be like because you could end up making it far worse just with your good intentions. I think one thing you also talk about in the book is that when you have some people who especially know how to take care of a children with autism, uh, every now and then someone else should take over so the parents can have a sort of good date night or a night to themselves and the parents would just really appreciate that. Yeah, I, people, uh, churches are looking to how they can uh, help a, a family with autism, and they're thinking, I, I just, I, we don't know, we don't know what we're supposed to do, we don't, we can't do therapy, so what is it we can do? Well, one of the m- most important things to do is to support the parents, because it is really hard yep. to have, uh, to take care of a child with autism, and then have enough emotional energy to to give. To one another, so it is really, really difficult. Those regular date nights are very, very important. Uh, and so, if there is someone in the church who is able to do it, and sometimes it helps if the person has the training or has some experience in that way, but it doesn't always have to be that way. There are some people who are just natural at at doing this type of thing, and. Uh, if you can find someone in your church who is able to do that, to say, you know what, we're going to uh, look after your child tonight, and you go and do what you have to do, go out for that day, go out for dinner, go to a movie, whatever it is you have to do, and you do that, that family will feel so blessed. Mm-hmm. And that, as I said before, that will trickle down to the, uh, the child, because... Uh, even though uh, some people with autism may not demonstrate emotion as much as some other people, they are still sensitive to emotion. So if yeah. they know their parents are just, they're at the end of the rope, they just are, are so stressed out over things, they know that. And they also know when their parents are feeling calm when they're uh, feeling more content and they have a bit more emotional strength, they know that as well. So if you do that to... Um, do what? Hello? <clears throat> Hello? Hello? <laughs>